that's life. That's life. That's what all the people say. You're riding high and able. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Frank Sinatra, his recording of That's Life. And we're going to spend an hour on the life of Frank Sinatra. Born this day in history. And what a life it was. He was an American original. Jazz, traditional pop, blues. It was all there. Singer, songwriter, actor, producer, director. He was one of the most popular and influential musical artists of the 20th century. And one of the best-selling music artists of all time. 1,400 recordings, 31 gold, 9 platinum, 3 double platinum, and 1 triple platinum album. He sold more than 150 million records worldwide and appeared in 60 movies. And we're going to spend the next 60 minutes, my goodness, we could spend the next two hours talking about the one and only Francis Albert Sinatra. I can't deny it. I thought of quitting, baby, but my heart just ain't gonna buy it. And if I didn't think it was worth one single try, I'd jump right on a big bird and then I'd fly. I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pie. The road leading up to Frank's birth was not paved with yellow bricks. On February 14th, 1914, Dolly and Marty eloped to Jersey City as Dolly's parents refused to host a wedding and did not approve of Marty. He was illiterate, inferior at boxing, and was Sicilian, whereas Dolly's family were from Genoa in northern Italy, the right side of the Italian tracks. The couple eventually moved to Hoboken, New Jersey. My mom and dad grew up minutes away in West New York, New Jersey. Sinatra was given up for dead at birth. The delivery of the 13-pound baby in his parents' New Jersey kitchen on this day in 1915 was traumatic. When he finally emerged, there were no signs of life, so the doctor put him to one side to attend to his mother, Dolly. It was only when the child's grandmother picked up the baby, ran cold water over him, and slapped his back that he started to breathe. This was how... Frank Sinatra's life began. Frank shared this story while speaking at Yale in 1986. As you will hear, he is still filled with appreciation. I was born in 1915 on December 12th, and I weighed uh, 12 and three-quarter pounds. And when I was removed from her womb by a midwife, there was a problem. I didn't want to come out of there. And uh, they finally, they sent up a flare for a doctor. And upon removing me, I was uh, pretty well damaged of my left side of my neck and ear and face. And my grandmother, uh, who had more sense than anybody in the room, as far as I'm concerned, because she, <laughs> she knew what to do with me. And she stuck me under the ice cold water in a, in a, in a cold water flat and apparently uh, got some blood moving around and whacked me around a little bit. And uh, I have blessed that day, that moment, in her honor ever since. 
When Sinatra's mother was a child, her pretty face earned her the nickname Dolly, energetic and driven. Biographers believe that she was the dominant factor in the development of her son's personality traits and extraordinary self-confidence. Here's Frank again. I was the only child, yeah. and, and she was tough on me. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was very strict with me, my yeah. was always strict. She's told me to stay away from the railroad tracks because a kid, one, one time, one day, a kid lost an arm. About three years later, another guy, a little guy lost his leg. And uh, if she found out that uh, I was down there in the railroad tracks, she'd whack me around out of fear. Mm-hmm. Out of fear. I think the first thing that I was ever conscious of was a drive that she had all the time. Her constant seeking was to do better, to constantly do better. Do better. When Sinatra was young, being an Italian-American was being the object of bigotry. You were part of a minority group, one that was stereotyped as being either comical or absurd. The organ grinder with the monkey, or the dangerous and threatening type, the guy with the Tommy gun. And Sinatra, growing up in Hoboken, knew that guy with the Tommy gun was real. In those days, there were sayings. In order to be an attorney or an accountant, you had to be a Jew. In order to be a singer, you had to be an Italian. In order to be a prize fighter, well, you had to be Irish. Which is why Frank's father took the name Marty O'Brien. Because Italians were not welcomed in the fight game. Furthermore, Italians were considered lower than the Irish in Hoboken. Marty broke his wrist after 30 professional fights. But his well-connected wife, Dolly, got him work as a fireman. While still a captain in the fire department, Marty and Dolly opened a tavern during the Prohibition era called, what else, Marty O'Brien's. In 1920... When prohibition of alcohol became law in the United States, Dolly and Marty were allowed to operate openly by local officials who refused to enforce the law. It was in this bar where Frank saw his future. Here's Sinatra. They had in the bar a piano with a, with a roll in it. They put, they put a nickel in it and would play the songs. And uh, occasionally one of the men in the bar would pick me up and put me up in the piano and I'd sing with a roll. And it was a horrendous voice. Terrible. I mean, it was like a siren. You know, honest and truly, I'm in love with you. Way up there like that. It's a wonder I ever got anywhere starting that way is what kills me. <laughs> so, one day I got a nickel or a dime, whatever it was, and I said, this is the racket. This is what you got to be doing. This is what you got to be doing. And when we come back, you're going to hear more about this extraordinary life, the many contours, detours, ups and downs, because it was not all up. My goodness, there were probably more downs, and you won't believe them, and he always came back. And always, always, there was that, well, there was that loneliness. And we're going to dig into that loneliness when we come back. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories for the hour. The life of Frank Sinatra. Of me, so deep in my heart that you're really a part of me. I've got you under my skin. I tried so not to give in. I've said to myself this affair Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away If 
can use some exotic booze. There's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me. Let's fly, let's fly away. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're talking about the life of Frank Sinatra. And we left off at that bar, his dad's bar. And it turns out Frank was not only attracted to acting, but all of the performance arts. Hoboken had uh, about six movie theaters, really one mile square. And every time I saw somebody, I wanted to be them. I wanted to be a ventriloquist. Then I saw jugglers and all that kind of stuff. But I was still thinking about singing. I never lost that thing about singing back here. And um, I went to see performers. I mean, not anybody famous until I saw Bing. Until he saw Bing, and that's Bing Crosby, of course. And Crosby was the first great pop singer in America and the first white singer to completely internalize the innovations of jazz, which he got directly from the great Louis Armstrong. Sinatra, who idolized Bing, decided to become a singer. He said, quote, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to be like that. Here's a very young Frank sounding more like Bing than what we've come to know as old blue eyes. But one thing's indisputable. He had a measurable potential and his peers noticed. I like New York in June. How about you? I like a Gershwin tune. How about you? I started singing more in school with the uh, dancers on Friday nights. Every other Friday night we had to dance in the gymnasium. And people would say to me, hey, you're pretty good. And that began to register in my head. How about you? Frank's mom took notice, too although she was not so receptive. Well, I first discovered it when he didn't want to go to school anymore, outside of uh, just going into these glee clubs all the time. Uh-huh. And how old was he at the time? At the time, he was about 16. Uh-huh. And uh, naturally, the principal sent for me and said he was just taking up space. Taking up space. Well, Frank decided to drop out of high school. And here's Frank on the resulting family crisis. Oh, it was disastrous. Absolutely disastrous. My dad, you know, who never had too much of a formal education, was terribly disappointed. He, he just couldn't understand it. I pleaded with him. I said, you've got to give me a chance to, to, to work on what I want to do. And he said uh, something about, uh, sure, chance, chance. He said, ten years from now, he said, you'll still be looking for a chance. You'll be a bum, he said. You'll be a bum, he said. By the way, how many dads have said, said that to their kids? And it didn't work out. It was 1936, and Frank's singing career was going nowhere. His father's bum prophecy was beginning to become a reality. Here's Frank on his father's response. He, at this particular morning, said to me, uh, uh, why don't you just get out of the house and go out on your own? Is really what he said, you know, get out. And uh, I think the egg was stuck in here for about... <laughs> 20 minutes, I couldn't swallow it or get rid of it anyway. My mother, of course, was nearly in tears. and uh, but, but we agreed that it might be a good thing. And then I packed up a small case that I had, and I came to New York. Now, as a young man in New Jersey, New York might as well have been Oz. And this is hard to understand, folks. I know that part of New Jersey. 
And it's right there on the Hudson River, directly across from Manhattan. I mean, the Empire State Building, you can see from the piers and docks of Hoboken. But these kids, these working-class kids, didn't think that was their city. The magic city that he looked at from just a few thousand feet across the way just wasn't his home. But Frank's move to the Big Apple offered nothing but dead ends. So the prodigal son attempted to move back home with his parents. How did his father respond? Well, here's Frank. About that point was the Christmas that came that I went home. And I thought my old man was on 24-hour shift, but I had the day screwed up. He was off 24 hours, and he was at home. And I brought two presents over to leave them there, because he didn't speak to me for a long time. He wouldn't talk to me. And uh, he met me at the door. And, uh, of course, it was a great homecoming. He started to cry, and I was teary, and it was just marvelous. But Frank couldn't stop pursuing his passion. Several months after the Christmas incident, a musician friend of mine told me there was a joint called a Rustic Cabin, and they were forming a new band, and they were looking for a boy singer. I went up and auditioned in Englewood Cliffs, up near the George Washington Bridge. Got the job at the Rustic Cabin. Shortly after that, we got word that the WNEW Dance Parade was going to pick up the Rustic Cabin every night of the week, 11 to 11.15 or 11.15 to 11.30, whatever it was. Frank earned a measly $15 a week at the Rustic Cabin, but his father began to see the fruits of his son's passion. Suddenly, uh, my dad became the proudest man in the world. You know, he, he couldn't wait to tell anybody, everybody or anybody that I was on a 15-minute dance remote program from New Jersey in some roadhouse somewhere, you know. And they'd all sit around the radio and listen at 11 o'clock at night for 15 minutes. And in those days, I couldn't sing my way out of a paper bag, but they thought it was a big star, you know. Anybody got on the radio in the early days of radio was a very big star. You bet. While Sinatra never formally learned how to read music, he had a fine, natural understanding of it. And he worked very hard from a young age to improve his abilities in all aspects of music, even while he was earning some success. On his night off, Frank would take his girlfriend Nancy out on dates. Actually, it wasn't technically a date. It was a business. Frank would use his one night off to see people in the music business. Here's Frank on one of those nights that yielded a huge payoff. That's when I ran into uh, one of the men in the music business who said to me, uh, listen, he said, why don't you take some lessons? And I said, what kind of lessons? He said, vocal lessons. He said, you know, guys do that. I said, well, uh, where do you find these guys? He said, there's a guy up over the brass rail, which he said, the restaurant. He said, his name is Quinlan. He said, he's an old drunk. He said, he used to be at the Met, and he got kicked out of the Met. And he said, you ought to go up and talk to him. So I went up, and he was surly. I think he was hungover anyway. He said, uh, who are you, and how long have you been singing, and uh, why do you want to be a singer, and all that kind of stuff. I said, well, I'd like, I'd like to be a singer because I feel that uh, I have an idea about singing. Oh, he said, you already got an idea. He said, why do, we, why do you need me? I said, no, what I mean is I just need some direction. He said, I'll tell you what we'll do. If you can handle $3 a week, he said, I'll give you three lessons a week. And I started three lessons a week. And I couldn't wait to get there every, every time I had a lesson. I couldn't wait because I knew that I was learning something. He was teaching me the proper way to sing. I still use the same exercises, and then I develop some of my own. Thanks to those bedrock vocal lessons from that drunk John Quinlan, Frank's rocket began hearing a countdown. Now I was on the air twice, once at night and one in the morning. 
And I got fan mail. And I'd get little postcards, two postcards, three postcards, and girls would write to me, you know, penny postcards. And I'd go and look in there right away and see if I how much mad did it get any bigger. Never got any bigger. People began to hear me. And they were saying, Jesus, you're getting better. You really, we see the difference in what's happening. It was 1939. Frank was 25. He just married Nancy, left the rustic cabin to play with the world-famous Tommy Dorsey Band. Here's Joe Stafford, who was a backup singer in Dorsey's band. We were just sitting on the bandstand when Tommy announced this new singer. Out on the stage walked this very skinny, unprepossessing-looking young man, and I thought, wow. Sometimes I wonder why I spend the lonely nights dreaming. He sang about eight bars, and that whole theater became so quiet, you could have heard a pin drop. You just knew that you were hearing something quiet. On the back end of this, we're going to get into the the guts of Sinatra's career. The way he got under a song. The way he got under the skin of a song. This is Lee Habib again, Our American Stories. You can go to ouramericannetwork.org and catch all of our stories. We'll be back right after this. What good would common sense for it do? Cause it's witchcraft, wicked witchcraft. And although I know it's strictly taboo, when you arouse the need in me, Indeed in me Proceed with what you're leading me to It's such an ancient pitch But one I wouldn't switch Cause there's no nicer witch than you Mississippi, here we all work while the rich folk play, pulling them boats from the dawn till sunset, getting no rest until the judgment day. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Frank Sinatra singing the great Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein, Old Man River from Showboat. When we picked off, we found out he had just gotten a gig with Tommy Dorsey. And Dorsey gave Frank one of the biggest platforms to stand on in the entire music business. But as multi-Grammy and Academy Award winning songwriter extraordinaire Sammy Kahn and Frank himself disclose, it's this, that Dorsey gave Frank something even bigger than a gig. Something that would shake Sinatra's iconic 
vocalizations. Tommy Dorsey had this incredible, incredible breath control. Without breathing against... I could never see him breathe. 16 bars at a time, I wonder how he does that. If you can visualize a trombone player holds the mouthpiece, he was breathing in the corner of his mouth. And that was my theory, do not break a phrase if you can do that. And keep the audience listening for the rest of the phrase. Here's music critic John Lahr on Sinatra applying the breath control he learned from Dorsey. He would be able to sing four lines of that song. There was a seamlessness, a smoothness, and not one person is looking at anybody else. And they are completely under the spell of Sinatra's story. My stardust melody The memory of love's After this, Frank's career took off. Sinatra mania was in full effect. He signed with Columbia Records in 1943 and was one of the most recognized men in the country. Frank had his struggles, though. He divorced Nancy, got remarried in 1951 to actress bombshell Ava Gardner. Shortly after his marriage to Ava, Frank's singing career began to stall. His marriage was failing and his popularity was crashing. Frank took to the bottle. Here's Sinatra himself recalling a, recalling a remorseful New York City night. I became an out-and-out out drunk. I mean, I was bombed all the time. But God bless Tootsies. I never paid a damn at Tootsies. Drink up, drink up, all you people. So at 4 o'clock, of course, this night, the eighth day go, he said, you better go home. Order! Now, he was on 52nd Street. I was staying at Jimmy's 57th Street. I walked out, and it was like 20 degrees. Have fun. So I started walking, and I'm walking, walking. Suddenly, I don't know where the hell I am, because the booze really hit me. It really hit me like a sledgehammer. And the next thing I knew, there was a flashlight in my eye, and somebody was shaking. And the lights on. You're going to have to get out of here. Come on, get up. And the cop grabbed my arm, and then he looked at me. You Sinatra? The cop was not the only one to witness Frank's drunken distress. Here's Frank's closest friend, Sammy Davis Jr. I was in somebody's car in New York. We stopped at a light and I saw him coming past the Capitol like this. Walking down the street, coat collar, a hat, and was alone. It was the first time I'd ever seen him alone. And nobody was stopping him and nobody was doing it. And nobody cared. And nobody cared. Frank hit rock bottom. It was 1953, and a film about the attack on Pearl Harbor called From Here to Eternity was being cast, starring acting legends Burt Lancaster, Donna Reed, and Montgomery Clift. Frank lobbied hard for the part. I spoke to uh, Harry Cohn, who was then the head of Columbia Pictures, and uh, I said, I'd like to play that. He said, well, he said, you've never done a dramatic role. You're a guy of sing and dance with Gene Kelly. And I said... But that's the kind of thing I think I can do. Ironically, it was his rocky marriage to Ava that got him the part. Here, Frank's daughter, Tina, 
daughters, Tina and Nancy Sinatra Jr., detail the phone call Ava made to the contentious president of Columbia Pictures, Harry Cohn. Their marriage was not going swimmingly, but he had to get back on his feet. She knew that better than anybody. She placed the call to Harry and said, You know who should play Maggio, don't you? That son of a husband of mine. (laughs) It's pretty funny, yeah. (laughs) It worked. They tested Sinatra and he got the part. It was perfect for him. All he had to do was make the audience laugh and cry at the same time. A very hard task for the most seasoned actor, but a skill Frank had been successful with throughout his singing career. But this was acting, not singing. The execution was completely different. Like he had done in the past, Frank went looking for direction. He got it from the director of the picture, Fred Zinneman. Here's Frank. And one time in Honolulu with Freddie, I said, must be something missing in my script. It went from scene number 162 to 164. And he said, well, do something, you know. What would a drunk do at the bar? And I said, well, drunks do a lot of things at bars. Bar's out of there, whiskey. Large whiskey. Excuse me. Hey, buddy. Sam. Hey, coming out, fellas, the Terry Gimbel's basement. Stand back there now. Here we go. A seven for daddy. Five deuce. E seven. Snake eyes. <laughs> That's the story of my life. <laughs> Frank got paid a pathetic 8000 for eight weeks' worth of work. It didn't matter to him. He was as hungry as ever, and his passion showed up on the big screen. I think what made people enjoy it and like it was my inner love for doing it and wanting it and needing it so badly. On March 25th, 1954, Frank was nominated for his role in From Here to Eternity with an Oscar. They opened the envelope and... The winner is Frank Sinatra. (laughs) Frank was back on top again. But what he did immediately after receiving his Oscar is far from the usual all-night celebrating. Here's Frank's daughter, Tina Sinatra. I think that everybody was disappointed there wasn't some extended celebration. He wanted to be with himself. He said, I just went home, parked the car, and I walked. I walked. Now this is not terribly surprising. After all, Frank was the poet laureate of loneliness. His songs were haunted by it, and for all of his fame... Frank loved solitude. Frank and Ava soon divorced, and a few years later, he wed a young actress named Mia Farrow. He or she is offering a very unique look into the man, his persona, and his music. The way I saw it, there was this person that was so, so shy. You can see it in pictures sometimes when you see him looking at me. We were both shy people. So there was this Frank, and then there was another version. In Las Vegas, these people who would show up, I didn't know them from anywhere else, and they came and they called women broads. They only related to each other, the men. They told jokes and they drank and they gambled. And I I did meet mafia people. If the evening went on late enough, he might just say, let's go to London. And he would call his pilot, and next thing we'd be in an airplane. I learned to bring my passport to dinner. Before he made a record, or before he opened in Las Vegas, he would stop smoking for six weeks. And he wouldn't drink, he wouldn't smoke. I remember him 
telling me that he would never sing um, songs that were popular at the time, What Kind of Fool Am I? And he said, I would never sing that song. He said, because uh, I, ca I can't sing what I can't feel. I can't sing what I can't feel. That's part of the reason we were attracted to Frank, I think. This time His voice was always confiding something. He wasn't busy emoting. He was busy connecting. And this gives his voice its extraordinary sympathy and relatability. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. When we can't come back more with Frank Sinatra. Can we make one? It was a very good year It was a very good year For small town girls This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories And we're spending the hour on Frank Sinatra And you're listening to him singing one of the great Capitol recordings. It was a very good year. When I was 17. And unlike most of the singers we hear on the radio, Frank was confessing to us. And this always gave his voice extraordinary sympathy and relatability. He sounds the way you would sound if you could speak the things you feel. If you dared to. It was a very good year. It was a very good year for city girls who lived up the stairs with all that perfumed hair. And it came undone. On January 24th, 1969, Frank lost his father. Like many Americans, Frank had been silently strong through the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, his brother Bobby, and then Martin Luther King. But when his father died, something in Sinatra snapped. Here he is sharing a story about his father who struggled to share how proud he really was of his son, while literally behind closed doors, his father was beaming with pride for his son. My father loved me, if possible, more than my mother, but he never showed. He never wanted to, to open up with me. He was a terrible introvert. For instance, I went to the firehouse when I appeared at the Paramount. I said, my dad around, he said, uh, we think he's upstairs. When I came up, he was standing in front of the door of the locker, shaving. As I approached him, he apparently saw me and slammed the door. But I had already seen in the mirror. This thing was full of clippings that he had been saving. Or had guys cut out of magnifying them to cut them out of magazines and save them for him. 
downbeat and metronome and newspaper clippings. Won't you tell her please to put on I could have wept when I saw it. Speed, follow my lead. Oh, he loved my success, but he, but he never mentioned it. He would never talk about it. In 1978, Frank turned one more song into a standard with New York, New York. Sinatra actually had two hits called New York, New York. The first was in 1949 from the film On the Town and was written by Leonard Bernstein. Thirty years later, Sinatra cut the theme for Martin Scorsese's 1977 theatrical bomb, New York, New York, but Sinatra turned it into his signature song and his onstage closer. He also angered the lyricist by customizing the words, adding the climactic phrase, A number one. Here it is. I want to wake up in a city that never sleeps And find I'm A number one Top of the list, king of the hill You almost can't cut it there, can you? <laughs> Here's culture critic Terry Teachout on the significance of this song. What is touching about it is this is a man who, in his youth, looked across the river and saw his dreams. And now, in his late middle age, in his old age, he sings a song about having achieved those dreams. Radio host Jonathan Schwartz was at Radio City Music Hall for Sinatra's first public performance of New York, New York, here's what he saw. I was present at the very first moment that he sang it publicly. It was during the Yankee Dodger World Series of 78, and he was playing Radio City, opening night. He turns to the conductor and says, what's the first line? He said, start spreading the news. Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today I want to be a part of it New York, New York Frank had successfully arrived at Oz and Oz of course being that big city right across the river right across the Hudson River New York City and what got him there in the end it's that ability to get under the skin of a lyric and to relate to the ordinary, everyday American, and particularly to the lost, to the lonely, and to the loser. Here's an intro to the great Hoagy Carmichael song, I Get Along Without You Very Well. I think it says it all. We shall call this next segment Songs for Losers. These are songs of unrequited love and Girls running away from home and all that kind of jazz. I get along without you very well. And when Frank got to Oz, what he saw behind the curtain, well, we do not know. One thing seems apparent. Frank found meaning, pleasure, and deep satisfaction by touching those who listened to his music. In a 1963 Playboy interview, Frank said this, quote, 
Whatever else has been said about me personally is unimportant. When I sing, I believe. I'm honest. If you want to get an audience with you, there's only one way. You have to reach out to them with total honesty and humility. This isn't a grandstand play on my part. I've discovered, and you can see it in other entertainers. When they don't reach out to the audience, nothing happens. You can be the most artistically perfect performer in the world, but an audience is like a woman. If you're indifferent, Ensville. That goes for any kind of human contact. A politician, on television, an actor in the movies, or a guy and a gal. That's as true in life as it is in art. Well, we're going to close out with the group's favorite here at Our American Stories. The one that we think represents and manifests what we just read so well. The great Harold Orlin and Johnny Mercer song, One for My Baby and One More for the Road. Drinking, my friend, to the end of a brief episode. Make it one for my babe And one more for the road I got the routine Put another nickel In the machine Feeling so bad Can't you make the music Easy and sad I could tell you a lot But you've gotta be True to your code Just make it one for my baby And one more for the road You'd never know it But buddy, I'm a kind of poet And I got a lot of things I'd like to say Frank Sinatra's favorite toast was, May you live to be a hundred, and may the last voice you hear be mine. He didn't make it to a hundred, but the business of Frank Sinatra is still going strong. All you need to do is listen. His voice is still heard in restaurants, bars, airports, and other public spaces all over the world. Frank has solidified as recordings continue to prove nearly two decades after his death at 82 that he is one of the most recognizable voices in history. It was, after all, why they called him The Voice. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, The Life of Francis Albert Sinatra. But this torch that I found It's gotta be drowned 
or it soon might explode. So make it one for my baby and one more for the road. The long, it's so long. The long, very long. is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamer series. And we've done a whole bunch on a whole bunch of types of people, but every once in a while, it's about a musician. And by the way, our music hours have included everything from Frank Sinatra to Tom Petty to Kurt Cobain, Miles Davis, John Denver, Greg Allman, Vladimir Horowitz, John Paul White, Merle Haggard, Chris Stapleton, my favorite, Aretha Franklin and Carol King, Chuck Berry, and of course, Johnny Cash. And I don't think you'll be able to figure out what our musical preference is by that list, because we love it all. And this story, well, Alex Cortez brings us the life story of a number one selling female recording artist and the number one in history, with over 200 million record sales worldwide. Take it away, Alex. Connie Francis liked to record songs, just not her most important one. Sorry now. I didn't want to do Who's Sorry Now. My father was after me for a year and a half to do Who's Sorry Now. I said, when was that thing written anyway? He said, 1923. I said, the kids at American Bandstand will left me right off the show, Daddy. He said, if you don't sing this damn song, the only way you'll ever get on American Bandstand is if you sit on top of the television set. So I didn't want to do the song, and I saved it for last, and I dragged out the other song so I wouldn't have time for Who's Sorry Now. But there were 16 minutes left on the session, and my father said, you got 16 minutes left? Sing the damn song. So I sang it like I didn't care. And that's how I developed my own style. And when she finished recording that song that she didn't like, there were only a few seconds left on the tape. That's how things worked back then. And as the relatively unknown Connie Francis thought would happen, the song also went unnoticed. At first, but on January 1st, 1958, it debuted on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Miss Connie Francis, who's going on? It would sell over one million copies going to number one on the charts in the UK, number four in the US, and for the next four years, she was voted the best female vocalist by American Bandstand viewers. She was only 19 years old, and she was a worldwide star. Not that her parents would treat her that way. I remember after Who's Sorry Now, it was a big hit. My mother one night said, take out the garbage. And I said, I, I don't have to take out the garbage anymore. I'm a star now. She said, I'll make you see stars. 
<laughs> so I would never get a big head. She would see me writing in my diary, and she said, you're writing your diary again? What do you have to write about? You're not that important. She said that to you? Yes. <laughs> That's a pretty good humbling thing. <laughs> do, do you thank her for, for uh, doing yes. that? No. Yes, I do. <laughs> her mom wasn't really into her music career, but her dad sure was. Italian home in that generation, all Italian girls with Italian fathers who were living had to play the accordion. It was like a rite of passage. So my dad had an old broken down concertina that his dad had brought with him from Italy. And every night he would play me songs on the concertina. And he asked me, do you want to take accordion lessons or piano lessons? I was three. So I said accordion like a dope. Who could afford a piano anyway? And so uh, at the age of four, I gave my first concert. And I sang Anchors Away and O Sole Mio. You know, I have a three-year-old myself, and I just couldn't imagine them starting to learn the accordion at that age. (laughs) The accordion was bigger than I was. But it was a great big stage at Olympic Amusement Park in Irvington, New Jersey. And I was four years old, and when I heard the sound of the applause, it was like a magical sound I've never forgotten. And I've been addicted to the roar of the crowd ever since. Can you really remember that age? I'm I'm forgetting what the exact science is, but isn't it something like at age two or three, you know, you don't remember anything before then. Um, I'm just curious how vivid your memories are. I remember it were yesterday. Do you remember being nervous before? No, I wasn't nervous at all. I was very eager to get up on that stage. (laughs) Music was always there in her Italian neighborhood that's called the Italian Down Neck in Newark, New Jersey. And what was also ever-present was food. Well, food was a pagan ritual to Italians. I mean, they would refer to food as beautiful and nice. Look at that nice piece of pork butt. Have sit down, I'll make you a beautiful sandwich. Oh, done. Where do you taste this cocoa, man? Your mouth in your mouth. They call it communion. <laughs> Everything was about food. They could be enjoying the most delicious meal, 12-course meal, and they'll talk about something they ate last week or something they're going to eat the next week. And at age 10, she was on a children's show for a whole year. And at this point, she was going by her full legal name, Conchera Franconero. But by age 12, when she appeared on the show Talent Scouts, Hosted by a giant, Arthur Godfrey, things would change. He was having a hard time pronouncing Frank and Arrow, so he said, come over here, little girl. He said, how do you pronounce your name again? So I said, Franco Nero, as if teaching him a foreign language. And he said, wow, he said, that's a toughie. Why don't we give you a good old, easy to pronounce Irish name? Like, let's see. Like, what about Francis? And I said, oh, Mr. Godfrey, please, my father will have kittens. Can you please just try to say Connie Francanero tonight, and tomorrow I'll ask him if I can be Connie. What's that name again? (laughs) Francis. Connie Francis first got signed by MGM Records, and what hooked them was her demo song, Freddy. It was a silly little ditty. It was a squeaky song. Freddy, I know that you've been seeing Daisy. Freddy, like that. You have a standing invitation. MGM's Harry Meyerson liked the song, largely because it was the name of his son. 
whom he could give it to for his birthday. That is no joke. That's the real story of how Connie Francis first got signed. Then came Who's Sorry Now? And then the scary realization, where is my next hit going to come from? Could this all be over soon? And when we come back, more on the life of Connie Francis here on Our American Dreamers Stories. And what a story this is. More after these messages. is our american stories and we return to alex's feature with connie francis and when they left off she was only 19 years old and had her first monster hit with who's sorry now but would she have another one donny kirshner and he was a publisher with a broken down office and a broken desk and a broken chair and he called me and he said i have two kids they're phenomenal they're great songwriters i said everybody has great songwriters so he said, no, these kids are really great, Connie. One of them goes to Juilliard on a scholarship. That was Neil. Neil Sadaka. And the other one is a gopher, a music publishing company, but they've got great talent. So they came to my house, and we were living in a dilapidated house. I mean, it was when Who's Sorry Now hit. We had lost our middle-class home. We were living in a rented apartment in Newark. It was so depressing. There was wooden floors and... I'd get splinters in my feet when I was ever stupid enough to walk without shoes. And Neil nudged Howie in the, in, with his elbow, like, look at this place. So they played me song after song after song, and it was all beautiful music, but it was too educated. I said, I don't think you guys are going to make it in this business. I said, the kids don't dig this kind of stuff anymore. Don't you have something a little more lively? And suddenly Howie said, play her that song that we gave to the Shepherd Sisters this morning. And Neil said, no, Howie, she'll be insulted. She's a classy singer. They were whispering back and forth. So I said, play this song already, whatever it is. I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I want to go to bed. I got to write my diary yet. So I was on my belly, writing on my diary and listening with half an ear. And then he, Neil played, stupid Cupid, you're a real mean guy. I'd like to clip your wings so you can't fly. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You guys got my next record, Stupid Cupid, hit title. Stupid Cupid, you're a real mean guy. I'd like to clip your wings so you can't fly. Stupid Cupid would reach number 14 on the Billboard chart and became her second number one single in the UK. And it was something else of a year. For Connie Francis. You had mentioned that they had come to your house and you guys were kind of down on your luck. You had lost your home. Can you tell us more of that story of, of what was going on with your family? Well, my father put all of his business into a bleach that they sell only to Italian housewives. And he lost a $15,000 fortune and our house. My father, who never took a chance, took a chance. And I always look back. The end of 57... I was taking shorthand and typing in my Aunt Marie's office. The end of 58, I was voted the world's number one female vocalist. 
Following this success, she followed another idea from her dad, who might have flopped in his own career, but not in hers. And theirs was a complicated relationship. Well, it was a love, I can't say hate, but it was a love-resentment relationship. It was very combustible. We fought over macaroni and cheese and cheese and macaroni. We fought over everything. But at four years old, I was singing Oso and Neo in Italian and English. So, um, and then he encouraged me. When I was 14, we used to read the newspapers from cover to cover every, every day. Every night when he came home from work, he was a roofer. And he was, uh, you know, he had a little broken down roofing truck. But he was very smart, and he would read anything he'd get his hands on. And we would read the newspapers from cover to cover every single night. And when I was 14 years old, he said to me, Connie, someday if you ever do make it on records, and that's a long shot, believe me, it's a long shot. But if you ever do, I want you to think about singing songs in foreign languages, especially in Japanese and German, because aside from England, they're going to be our two biggest allies. And you can make more friends through your music than all the phony politicians in Washington put together. So that's what I remembered. When I did make it on records, I started recording in foreign languages. I did most of my singles in five or six languages. And the first foreign language album that her father recommended was in their native Italian. And of the favorite songs of that language, Connie went to the famous Abbey Road Studios in London. The Abbey Road Studios where the Beatles recorded and came out with the album... Connie Francis sings Italian favorites, which remained on the charts for 81 weeks, peaking at number four. And to this day, it's Connie's most successful album. And its single, Mama, would reach the number eight chart position in the U.S. and number two in the U.K. Connie would record seven more of these favorites albums, including in... Yiddish, a language that she actually learned as a young kid. Three years old, we moved in with my grandma. We lived there for two years. And if you weren't Italian in that neighborhood, you needed a passport to get in. Then when I was five years old, we moved to an all-Jewish neighborhood. And in that place, if you weren't Jewish, you needed a passport to get in. And so I learned a lot of Yiddish. It's a very comical language. It's sarcastic and it's comical. I think I knew more Yiddish than all the bar mitzvah boys I ever dated put together. And their parents would get such a kick out of it because I would speak to them in, in their colloquial language. How, how did you learn it? I learned it from listening to all the Jewish people in my neighborhood. And how old were you when, when you learned it as well? Five years old. Wow. And you're just joking about needing a passport to get in. You mean that? I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah, you were an illegal alien if you weren't Jewish in my neighborhood. I mean, do you remember any kind of conflicts of your, your first experiences? Um, you know, any, any brushback that you got from people before you knew Yiddish and before they accepted you? Oh, they accepted me all right. The, the Jewish people have been among my biggest fans, even until today. I did record an album of Yiddish songs, and it was the best-selling Yiddish album, uh, Jewish album ever made. And of the languages outside of English, there was a clear favorite of Connie's. Japanese was the easiest language to sing of them all. 
because it has no sound, no sound that isn't within the English language. There's no rolling R's, there's no a guttural sound like in German and in Yiddish. I would record a song in 10 minutes in Japanese. I've never heard anyone say that before. That's really interesting. You probably never interviewed anybody who sang in Japanese before. <laughs> You're right, Connie. And even foreigners who weren't supposed to hear Connie's music, like the people trapped in the Soviet Union, did. If anyone was caught with my recordings, they could go to prison or, or death. Um, I did a radio show on Radio Luxembourg, which was a clear channel 50,000 watt station, which went behind the Iron Curtains. Uh, there were 15 million listeners a day. And it went all to the, all the countries behind the Iron Curtain and even into Tunisia and Morocco. And I did the, that show, 15-minute show, every week from New York and would send it into Radio Luxembourg. So the first time I went to East Germany, I was standing in front of a record store and they sold only classical music. Uh, pop music was, not, was banned. And I heard uh, the song, O Calcutta. There were two teenage boys standing there, about 16 years old. And I said, uh, do you like American music? And they said, nine, nine. No, no. I said to them in German. And I said, do you, do you, um, well, what's that, where's that music coming from? And they started to run away. And I said, my name is Connie Francis. And they went crazy because they, they had heard my, my radio shows and they, they heard my music in German. And they went crazy. They couldn't believe it. And then they became very animated. I said, do you like American music? They said, yeah, yeah, you know. It was very exciting. It was on a one-day trip to East Berlin, wow. which was a horrible thing. And there was yet another thing that Connie was a part of and would lead to some boundary breaking her title track for the movie where the boys are would reach number four on the charts and the fort lauderdale florida-based movie would introduce the concept of spring break and it caught on a little too immediately when i went to do the movies well fort lauderdale was a prairie it was kept in control by only seven patrol cars in the entire city that was the police force when where the boys are was released in December and January of Christmas time at Radio City Music Hall and at the Gateway Theater down here in Fort Lauderdale. 50,000 kids inundated Fort Lauderdale and they had to call in the National Guard, they had to call in the Coast Guard, I-95 was a parking lot and, and kids were sleeping on the beach and, and uh, lots of kids were arrested. One kid was arrested for singing the Star Spangled Banner in the nude on top of a flagpole. Newsweek covered the story, and it was the biggest thing ever to happen in Broward County. My goodness, what storytelling. And when we come back, more of this amazing life, this remarkable singer, our American Dreamers series, Connie Francis's life, her story. Here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and now the final portion of this great American Dreamers feature on the life of Connie Francis. Connie Francis has truly lived the American dream, but not every chapter of her story has been bright. In 1974, while appearing at the Westbury Music Fair in New York, she was raped at a Howard Johnson motel and she nearly suffocated to death under the weight of a heavy mattress that the culprit had thrown upon her. She sued the motel chain for failing to provide adequate security and reportedly won a $2.5 million judgment. It was one of the largest such judgments in history and led to improvements in security measures across the hotel industry. Connie would also use this horrific experience and make something positive out of it. But not immediately. It wasn't positive for seven years. I didn't grant an interview and I, and I didn't, uh, I was a recluse until my brother was murdered. And then my brother's murder became my resurrection. I, I could no longer wallow in self-pity. And all during those seven years, I would receive thousands of letters from rape victims and victims of all violent crime. And I couldn't do anything about it, and I decided that I was going to do something about it. So I wrote the White House, I wrote the Reagan administration, and I was granted my own commission to fight violent crime. I wrote a Crime Victims Bill of Rights, which was ratified by the International Association of Chiefs of Police, and I still have to get it into the precincts, which I intend to do someday. I had laws changed called the Earnest Resistance Law in New York, where a victim had to show forcible resistance to a rape before she could even prosecute the rapist. I had that law repealed. And I was responsible for a law called Proposition 8 in California. Not the one to repeal gay marriage, but a Proposition 8, which was the toughest anti-crime bill ever passed in California. And within one year, violent crime was reduced by 12%. What an incredible, strong, focused, and determined woman. Connie mentioned her brother's murder in bringing her back out into the public. What happened? My brother was an assistant district attorney, and when he left that position, he was an attorney for the unions. And he cooperated with the government against dental clinics that were being built by the unions. And he cooperated with the government, and they murdered him. And to this day, I have not recovered from that. How close were you guys in age? Two and a half years. He was younger than I was. I asked Connie, how did she find some semblance of healing after such two awful events? And how about in the aftermath in terms of how to, you know, try to... How to cope with it. I'm a very poor example of how to cope with it because I didn't cope with it well at all. Uh, But I did keep a diary, and I think writing things down helps you a lot. And I have had a lot of good girlfriends. Uh, I had five or six very close girlfriends. And also my sense of humor. I never lost my sense of humor, and I think that's what pulled me through everything. I find humor in everything, even in mental hospitals. Huh. What kind of humor have you found there? Well, I found a doctor who headed the Mummer's Day Parade was dressed as Cleopatra. 
<laughs> it was one thing. Then they said to me, "We, uh, you have." I said, "Wait a minute." They they wrote down Peggy Smith on my admittance, and I said, "Wait a minute, I'm not Peggy Smith. I'm Connie Francis." And they said, "No, we do that to protect your identity." I said, "I want people to know where I am. I want my name." No, it's hospital procedure. You have to be Peggy Smith. I said, "Look." I've been in show business all my life, and I'm under the delusion that I'm a star. So if you give me the name Peggy Lee Smith, I'll go along with that. So they said, okay. <laughs> to close, I asked Connie about some of her greatest regrets and fulfillments in her career, including not marrying Bobby Mac the Knife Darren, who started out his career as a songwriter for her and when Connie's father learned that Darren wanted to elope after one of her shows he ran Darren out of the building at gunpoint telling him to never see his daughter again he would have my father would have killed us well he would have killed Bobby and people say throughout the years why didn't you hook up with Bobby later on after you were both successful because I was always afraid of his heart. My father had this pathological hatred for him that lasted until the day he died. Was there anything against him personally that he had? Well, he was male to begin with. So just the fact of another man taking taking his right. daughter? <laughs> yeah. So it could have been any male. <laughs> but especially Bobby. What I did resent was my father's control of my life, and I still resent it to this day. And in the dedication to my book, I write, although my father was inarguably the architect of my brilliant career, he was also the source of my greatest personal pain. A career where she also found deep meaning. What's, Connie, what's been the most fulfilling part of your career for you? I think entertaining the troops in Vietnam. I came back a different person, a much more serious person. And I was appalled at the way our veterans were treated when they came home from that war. Because to me, everyone who was there was a hero. What did you see in Vietnam that surprised you? The, the horrible. The MACV hospitals where they could perform any uh, kind of surgery, say for neurosurgery. And I would go to those first and speak to the guys. and. 18-year-old kids, the average age of a Vietnam veteran, crying in the night for their mothers. Um, was that even a controversial decision to go over there, period? I'm sure some artists were so against the war that they probably wouldn't even go. I was against the war, too. I supported Richard Nixon because he told me personally in his apartment that he had planned to end the war. That's the reason I supported him in 68, and I sang the campaign song. I was terribly against the war, but I wasn't against our troops, and I felt that they needed a touch of home, and it was the most gratifying experience of my life. Well, I went by myself. I didn't go with a troop or anything. Um, you know, like Bob Hope, would, they'd stay at the Thailand Hilton, and they would fly in and do a show and then fly out. I went to all the boondocks. I wanted to see what the, what, what was, what was, what the war was really all about. Connie Francis, a patriot, a child star, a worldwide star, an advocate for victims, an American dreamer.
And what a story. Great job on that, Alex and Joey. I don't think it gets better than that. I was against the war, but I wasn't against the troops. It was the most gratifying experience of my life, she said about entertaining the troops in Vietnam. And it was the most serious thing I ever did. She also said this about her dad. My father was the architect of my career, but also the greatest source of my pain. And that's why we love doing these stories about singers and artists. And I think that's why we're drawn to them. They share openly their pain, their wounds, and that's a hard thing to do. And they do it. And it's raw and it's real. And my goodness, what raw, real storytelling by Connie Francis. And by the way, ouramericannetwork.org is where you can find our storytelling on Frank Sinatra, on Merle Haggard, the Aretha Franklin Carol King story, remarkable, Chuck Berry, Johnny Cash's story will kill you, Miles Davis too. But this past hour, the life of Connie Francis, her story celebrated here on Our American Stories. our American stories and now it's time for one of our favorite segments the story of a song and today's comes from an artist whose songs are best known through cover versions by other musicians his Jersey Girl was performed by Bruce Springsteen his old 55 was sung by the Eagles down there by the train by Johnny Cash I hope that I don't fall in love with you by 10,000 maniacs the Long Way Home by Nora Jones. I Don't Want to Grow Up by the Ramones. And Downtown Train by Rod Stewart. And by the way, just from the mix of those artists, you've got to say, wow, what range. Today's song is about one man, one woman, and one tavern. With no further ado, let's take a listen to find out more about this one-of-a-kind American singer-songwriter. Our next guest is one of the most distinctive writers and performers working today. He's kind of a combination poet, jazz singer, and vagrant. He is a mix, mixture of um, Satchmo Armstrong and Humphrey Bogart. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tom Waits. How are you, Tom? Oh, I'm better than nothing. Your songs are about waitresses and bartenders and bums. Why do you celebrate these people in song? For the same reason that a lawyer hangs out in a pool room or 
How do you find a lot of photographers at a wedding, you know? Because I uh, find a lot of ideas here, and there's a lot of life going on around here, and, um, you know, so I'm uh, kind of a bit of a private investigator, maybe, you know? You know, my dad spent a lot of time in the bars. My dad drank in the afternoon in really dark bars. So I was drawn to the dark places. Everybody needs a different climate in order to create. Mine usually comes in, uh, if I'm talking with somebody in a bar or something, I uh, get a couple of loggers and uh, try to stretch out in conversation. I try to open things up, and then uh, I try to remember it all later and then I write it down. There's a, a, a real romance to hanging around these places. It's where you go to meet girls, but it's also where you go to invent yourself in strangers' eyes. He's an extraordinary painter of pictures, as well as a teller of stories. Looking for the heart of Saturday night Tell me, is it the crack of the pool balls Neon buzzing Loneliness, it's so much at the heart of so much of his music, I think. It's just a longing for something and being alone and how do you live with that and how do you deal with it? Magic or the melancholy tearing your eyes. I think Waits is a poet of doomed no-hopers. People who are almost like characters from a noir novel. They're getting their last chance at love. He was just a man out of time, clearly, and he knew it, I think, <laughs> obviously, and he, he played with it. The craft and young genius of someone who was coming up with lyrics that were on a par with someone like Johnny Mercer or Hoagy Carmichael or any of the songwriters that had been the backbone of the classic American songbook. Swam all wings on run. Swam I changed my name. The Great American Songbook is something that either gets to you or it doesn't. And it got to Tom. Because there was a lot of intelligence in that, in the lyrics of those songs. I would go over to my friends' houses and go into the den with their dads and find out what they were listening to. I couldn't wait to be an old man. I was about 13, you know. I didn't really identify with the music of my own generation, but I seemed to like the old stuff, Cole Porter and Gershwin and Frank Sinatra. What is this thing called love? Tom had that wonderful talent to absorb all of these things this that he saw. It's like storing up paints and being able to dig out the colors you want when you get ready to paint a picture. This is what he does. He paints pictures. And so true. And one of Tom Waits' most heartbreaking, beautiful picture songs is called I Hope That I Don't Fall In Love With You. This tender storyteller with a boozy baritone while wearing a $7 suit and an old man's weathered fedora hat expresses what a billion men have felt not the least on a lonely Saturday night. 
Here's I Hope That I Don't Fall In Love With You. Wow.
And the turn in the fourth phrase, I hope that you don't fall in love with me. After exposing all of his fears of commitment, the narrator realizes he is falling for this girl that he's never met, but now must face the realization she may return the favor. You can feel the pain of a man afraid of commitment in this song. He fumbles and worries, and once he finally gets the confidence to face her, well, it's too late. She's gone, and he knows he's missed his shot. And that's the world of Tom Waits. That's the world he inhabited in his music. I was always wanting to be an old man, he said, listening to Sinatra when everybody else was listening to rock and roll. The loneliness, by the way, in Sinatra's music, too. You want to hear a great hour. Listen to our hour on the life of Frank Sinatra here on Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And again, the work of Tom Waits, the life of Tom Waits, the story of a song. I hope I don't fall in love with you. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories. 